Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Thank you for being here this morning, for choosing to come and be a part of City Point Church today. Looking forward to taking God's word and opening it and diving into it with you this morning. Um, We are starting a new series today, and uh, as you can see on the screen, uh, our new series is entitled I Am, and we are going to be looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John, and we are excited about that. And so the tag underneath that is Jesus in his own words. This is what Jesus said and proclaimed about himself. And so we have the opportunity to dive into this and read and study and learn about what did Jesus say about who he is. These different times that he makes these statements, what did he say about who he is? What does it mean? And then what does it mean for us? And so we have the opportunity and the privilege today to do that. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that. This is not something that I would ever normally do, but I want to draw attention to my shirt. Um, I got this shirt um, for, for this series, and I'm super excited about it. I'll, I'll turn around and show you the back in just a second. But uh, a friend of mine had this shirt that she got for her husband, and I was just super impressed by it. And so I went online and found it and thought it was really cool. And so on the back, in the center, it says... Be- the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, and then all around it, it has the seven I am statements with a little picture on it as well, and so it'll have the seven statements that we will walk through over the next seven weeks, and so I'm super excited about that, and super excited about my shirt, thought you should know, be excited with me. Um, John chapter number six is where we will be this morning. John chapter number six, in God's word. The title, ready? Some of you are ready, some of you aren't. But the title of our sermon today is Let's Get This Bread of Life. And so I'm super excited about walking through this today. And so let's get this bread today. And so John chapter number six, we'll start in verse number 22, and I'll meet you there in just a moment. There are some unwritten laws and rules in our universe that are just kind of true, and we don't necessarily, um, they're not necessarily written down anywhere, but one of those laws, those unwritten laws and rules, is that of the law of decreasing satisfaction. The law of decreasing satisfaction, the idea that when you have something that over time, it does not, it is not something material, it does not provide the same satisfaction to you that it did when you first got it. It decreases its satisfaction over time. This is true in lots of different areas of life, but think with me about Christmas morning when you're opening up your gifts or your children are opening up their gifts and it's exactly what they wanted. It was the brand new video game or the brand new toy or this brand new thing that you absolutely had to have and it's amazing and it's wonderful, but now it is July 2nd and you can't find it and they can't find it or it is broken or they are bored with it. It doesn't satisfy like it used to. I remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I went out for our anniversary, we went to this place uh, in central Phoenix called uh, the Wrigley Mansion, and we went to just celebrate our anniversary, and it was really nice. It was this amazing meal at this uh, amazing place over right next to the Biltmore Hotel, and uh, we went out, and it was just, it was a wonderful meal. It was delicious. It was an amazing experience. It was super expensive. It, it was amazing and incredible, but... That night, we enjoyed that amazing meal, and the very next morning, guess what? I'm hungry again, because as amazing as it was, as incredible as the food was, as expensive as it was, it doesn't last. The satisfaction of that doesn't last, and now I am only left with the memory of what was. I heard about this uh, a couple of years ago. 
And it's something in the technology world called planned obsolescence. And so I started reading some articles about it and diving into it a little bit more. And planned obsolescence is something that companies do where they write in codes into their technology and their devices and their stuff to give it a shelf life. It means that it will have a cutoff date, essentially, where it stops working. And so whether there's a new like, operating system update after a couple of years or a new device, a new, uh, a new version of that device comes out, you can understand that after a year and a half of your brand new phone, and it's amazing and it's wonderful, but now all of a sudden they have announced there's a new operating system, there's a new version of this coming out, and now it won't hold a charge, or now it won't open the app that you want, and now that it won't, you have to reset it and all of this stuff. I believe that that is programmed into your phone so that you are convinced that it doesn't work anymore, that it doesn't satisfy, and you absolutely need the new one. And so... This is a reality, though, of the ephemeral things of our world. We are constantly bombarded with products and services that we are told that we must be convinced that we need, but inevitably, no matter how fresh the fit, no matter how cutting edge the tech, no matter how expensive or delicious the meal, no matter what it provides for you in the moment, it will oh so soon be old, ancient, forgotten, and unknown by tomorrow. The reality is things of this world are not meant to last. We look to them for satisfaction in the moment, but once the initial excitement wears off, we're left with the desire or the need to experience it again. And so it is with our spiritual lives. We run to things for enjoyment, for excitement, for enrichment. It may even meet some of that for just a brief period of time, but we often find ourselves empty, lacking, wishing things were different. We try to fill this, as someone put it a long time ago, we try to fill this God-sized hole that exists in all of us. We try to fill it with anything and everything that we possibly can. We run to self-help, to self-actualization, to self-love. We run to dependence on others, to validation from others, to identity from others. We run to sinful things that leave us feeling shame. We run to comparably uh, substantive things that leave us feeling fulfilled, but only for a moment. And this is where we find the group of people that are here in our text in John chapter 6. And so John chapter 6, beginning in verse number 22. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath a chair rack nearby. John chapter number 6 and verse number 22. The words will also be on the screen. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here, within this semi-lengthy portion of scripture that we will engage in, we find the first of Jesus's seven I am statements. And the big idea that sits over the top of this portion of scripture is this, true satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. True satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. You see, this isn't a bait and switch. 
This isn't a product that you absolutely have to have or else only for next year's model to be better and promise the exact same things that you have to have it or else. This isn't a cheesy infomercial promising you something for the one-time low payment of $19.95 plus shipping and handling. This is true, lasting satisfaction and it can only be found in Jesus who is the bread of life. And so this begs the question that we must ask and answer this morning, what am I supposed to do with this reality? With the reality that only true satisfaction can be found in Jesus, that that is the only place where I can find it. What do I do with this reality? And so today we're going to look at four necessary responses to this reality. The reality that Jesus, who is the bread of life, is the only place where we can find true and lasting satisfaction. And we'll look at four necessary responses to it and we'll frame it like this. Because only the bread of life satisfies, I must, number one, pursue Jesus over sustenance. Because only the bread of life satisfies, I must pursue Jesus over sustenance. Verse 25 When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him... God the Father has set his seal. And so at the beginning of chapter number six, we get the accounts of Jesus from verses one through uh, 21. We get, or one through 15, I'm sorry. We get the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then in verses 16 through 21, we get the account of Jesus in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee walking on the water. And so these people, we find this crowd, they are seeking Jesus. They had just experienced this incredible miracle, and their claim is that they are wanting more Jesus. But one of the humorous things that John writes that the Spirit has decided and inspired and inscripturated for us is this question that they ask in verse 25. You see, they look around and they see there were 13 men here yesterday, 12 disciples and Jesus. And in verse 22 through 24, in a moment of cognitive dissonance, they're saying, we saw one boat We know that the 12 got into the boat and that Jesus did not. Other boats have come in and left, but Jesus wasn't on those boats. And so 25 tells us that when they got to the other side of the sea, which is about 84 square miles around, when they got to the other side of the sea and found Jesus, they had one question for him. And it's one of those palpably ironic ones, like where you can just kind of feel the irony as they ask it. Rabbi, when did you come here? It's fair. It's a reasonable question, right? You can imagine, like me, that they get to the other side of the sea, and they finally find Jesus, and they're like, oh, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? Nothing wrong with that. That's a pretty normal question, but there's no irony in that. Really, the irony you see is in the fact that let's just pretend for a second that you didn't have the cheat code of verses 16 through 21, And so when they finally find Jesus, who they know didn't get into the boat the night before, but ended up on the other side, a journey that for sure would have taken him more than overnight to make, when they find Jesus, your question would not have been, when did you get here, but how? How did you get here? And in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't just respond with a flex and say, oh yeah, I just took a stroll on top of the water. It was no big deal. In typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer the question that they asked, but the one that they should have asked. They asked when. We probably would have asked how. And Jesus answers the question not of when, not of how, but of why. And not of why am I here? He answers the question of why are you here? Why are you here looking for me? Verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, yes, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not looking for me because you want me. You're not seeking me for me. You're not even here because you want to see another sign or another trick. There were people that were like that, but in Jesus' own words, he's not saying that these people would fit that It makes sense. Many in Jesus' day, though, lived day to day. And so Jesus says to them, you're not here because you want to see another sign. You're not here because you're looking for me. You're here because you're hungry. 
which is fine. Because people lived day to day. Day labor was very prevalent, which meant that the work that someone did for the day, it provided enough financial resources for them to provide food for themselves and for their family for the day. And then they would have to go out and get paid again the next day and buy food. And that cycle would just continue over and over again. But Jesus is addressing their real need, not their perceived need. And in verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So Jesus doubles down on his challenge to them. You're here for more sustenance, for more food, for more temporary stuff. Stop that. You don't need more sustenance. You don't need more food that is only going to leave you feeling hungry in a few hours. You don't need another meal. You need something greater. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm going to feed you, or I'm not going to feed you today because you need me, not more food. He's saying, if I keep feeding you temporary meals, you'll always be hungry for temporary meals. But if you could taste the eternal, if you could just have a taste of the eternal, it would satisfy you, and you would be satisfied by the eternal, and it would be so transformative and life-changing for you. J.D. Rockefeller, who was the great oil tycoon of the early 1900s, amassed a wealth in his lifetime of about a billion dollars, which would translate to well over $17 billion today. And he was asked the question one time, how much money would it take to make you happy? And his response is legendarily tragic, where he says, just one more dollar. There was a weighty lack of satisfaction in his life from one business deal to the next, one acquisition to the next, one benchmark million to the next. Nothing was good enough for him. But tell me honestly that we aren't the same way, that we are too often content to settle for the desires of our flesh. We are content with those desires being satiated while with the deep and real and true longings of our soul are left to fend for itself. We believe and so live in a manner consistent with the presumption that with a full stomach and a positive bank account that we can suppress or even deny the longings of our soul, that we can know full well what we need and not care that what we have isn't cutting it, that we can be spiritually bankrupt, and that's okay. As long as our temporary earthly needs are met, that we can, at a soul level, be hungry and empty and dry, and we don't mind one bit. Friends, this is not what God intended. He says that in, at the end of verse number 27, he says that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' most frequently used and favorite title for himself, that the Son of Man has come to give you more than sustenance, to give you more than something temporary, more than another meal. On him, God the Father has set his seal, that seal of being the eternal Son of God and the Son of Man and the suffering servant who would come and to make it possible for us to experience true and lasting salvation satisfaction in a relationship with God. That is who he is. That is why he came, so that we would not pursue more sustenance, more decaying, more ephemeral things, but so that we would pursue him. We must pursue Jesus over sustenance because only the bread of life satisfies. That's why I must pursue him. But number two, because only the bread of life satisfies, I must prioritize Jesus over standards. I must prioritize Jesus over standards. Verse number 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So these people have found Jesus and they have just been challenged by him to stop craving earthly things. Stop craving more sustenance. Stop looking for me to give you another earthly thing that isn't going to make a bit of eternal difference. Desire me. Pursue me. Long for the sustenance that's going to last, that's going to satisfy you. And their response is wildly indicative of humanity. Jesus says, desire me. And they say, what things do we need to do in order to desire you? What is the list of things that we need to do in order to desire you? Why? Because human beings crave control. 
We crave control. I am a fan of the television show Parks and Recreation, and there is an episode in season two of that show, if you're familiar with it. And the main character, Leslie, she works for the government. She works for the parks department of this tiny town in Indiana, and she has this desire to build a park. There's a pit that's there in the neighborhood, and it's literally a pit. It was a, it was a project a, that a contractor started to build, and he ran out of money and failed and just left it an open pit, and it's just become an eyesore. And so she has this desire to fill the pit, and, but also to turn that pit then into a park. And so she, on one day, she and her team have the opportunity to work with an organization that builds parks, and they build a park in a day. And so they do the playground equipment and all of this other stuff, and they have the opportunity to do it. And she's on this, like, incredible high from, like, building the park in a day, and she's super excited, and she has the desire to just get it done because she works in government, and she understands that it just moves real slow and that there's a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucratic nonsense that goes into it. So she feels like she can't get her job done because of all of this stuff. And so she gathers her teams together and she wants to have them come up with ideas to get this pit filled in so that they can move and turn it into a park. And so she gathers her team together. One of her team members pulls her aside and says, do you really want to get it done fast? And he says, don't ask for permission ask for forgiveness, which is horrible life advice, by the way. But that's what he says to her. And her response is very funny and very indicative of what we're talking about here because her response is, now who gives me the go-ahead to not ask for permission? And so for her, even in an opportunity, in a context to abscond from control and from asking somebody for permission, she still desires somebody to answer to and to give her the go-ahead to not have to do what she wants or to not have to go through all of these different steps. But I know that our world feels very chaotic and very out of control, very disordered, but that's not because we as human beings don't want control. It's because we are the ones that want to be in control. And when everyone wants to be in control, no one is in control. It's not that I don't want speed limits, right? I just want to be the one that decides how fast I go. It's not that we don't want certain limitations. We just want to be the ones that decide where the line gets drawn. Hear me, it's not that our society, it's not that people, it's not that our world doesn't want truth. The world has always wanted truth. Every single generation from the very beginning has always wanted truth. But everyone wants truth on their terms, not on truth's terms. And so we are longing, and it's instinctive of ourselves to want some sort of checklist. We want some sort of metric to follow, some organizational flowchart to work through. And maybe that's not your productivity mindset day to day. Maybe that's not how you work or how you live your life or do your job. But this is especially true as it pertains to our spirituality. That like the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18, who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like the Philippian jailer, mere moments after desiring to take his own life, in Acts chapter 16, says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like the crowd on the day of Pentecost, after Peter preaches and they are convicted in their hearts, in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 37, and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? There's this desire for something quantifiable. Something that we can look at and say, I've succeeded and accomplished this because of A, B, and C. And here, Jesus doubles down on what he has just said prior about them needing to desire and pursue him. And he does it by once again not answering the question that they asked, which was, what are the works that we need to do to be doing the works of God? But the question that they should have asked It wasn't a response of read your Bible and pray and go to church and give and don't look at bad things on the internet and don't gossip and don't drink, smoke, or chew or run around with those that do. And so his response is not a list of do's and don'ts. His response is one of clarity and kindness and conciseness. His response is one of simplicity. He says, this is the work of God. You want to know what do I do to do the works, plural of God? There is one work, and here it is. Believe. That you would believe in him whom he has sent. And here, Jesus gives us some clarity as to what we are supposed to do. Belief 
is the work. It's not a list of things that you have to check off. Belief is the work. The faith in Christ is the work to experience eternal life, to experience that eternal sustenance that can provide for you and satisfy you. Faith or belief is a refusal of my work and a complete dependence on someone else to work on my behalf. Faith is not just a blind belief. Faith is a refusal of my work and a complete dependence on someone else to work on my behalf. A couple of weekends ago, my wife and I had the privilege to go to Denver, Colorado, and see some friends get engaged and celebrate with them. And we get on the plane, and it's the boarding process that kind of sets me off for Southwest Airlines, and it's really frustrating because they put you in a group, and it doesn't matter, and I don't love it. If you love Southwest, I'm sorry. But it's one of those things where your job, your work, is buying the ticket, packing your bags, getting to the airport, boarding the plane, and sitting down. Your work is done, and you haven't even left yet. You see, your faith now has to be exercised because you have to completely refuse your work. There's nothing else actually you can do. Your work is done. And so now you have to have complete dependence on somebody else to work on your behalf. You have to have complete dependence on the bag crew to get your bag on the plane so that it is there in Denver when you land. You have to have complete dependence on the mechanics who worked on the plane, who went through their checklist before you boarded the plane to make sure that it's done. You have to have complete dependence on them. You have to have complete dependence on the pilot to fly, to know that he's awake, that he's alert, that he knows what he's doing, that he knows how to get there and he's not going to get you lost, that he's... He's going to get you there on time and where you want to go. You have to have complete dependence on him, on all of these other people to work on your behalf. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God in the flesh, that the word who became flesh, that the son of God came and lived a perfect, sinless life, that he came and did what the law claims that you and I have to do, but you, where you and I failed, where we couldn't get the job done, Jesus came and he lived that perfect, sinless life, and he did what you and I could not do. He worked where you failed, where you failed to work, where I failed to accomplish what God wants, Jesus came and he worked, which made him the only sacrifice able to go to the cross and satisfy the just demands of a holy God that blood would be shed for the penalty of our sin, not because of his sin, but that he would go and through his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross, that his blood would be shed for you because you cannot work to earn God's goodness. You cannot work to earn God's favor. You cannot work to attain to the holiness and the perfect standard of God. And so Jesus did it for you and his work on your behalf. And it wasn't done there as he died and cried, it is finished. Not I am finished, but the death penalty has been paid in full. It is finished. It has been satisfied. He is laid in the ground. And three days later, he comes bursting forth in glorious resurrection power, never to die again, proving that he is greater than death, that he's greater than sin, that he's greater than the devil, that he's greater than the grave, and that there is no enemy that can defeat him and it is by faith in his finished work on the cross that we experience eternal life by complete and total dependence on him is how we can experience this belief is the work of God for you and the beauty of the gospel is not that we were deserving people that did all the right things that checked all the correct boxes so we get God's greatest blessing. The unmatched beauty and splendor of the gospel is that we are and that there are still undeserving, wretched sinners, hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus Christ that he loves and pursues anyway. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him, which is why your work your one and only work is to, as he pursues, you believe. Prioritizing Jesus over more standards means that I am prioritizing belief. Now, Scripture will go on to emphasize that while belief is the work of God for you, meaning that all you need to do is believe, it does not in any way, shape, or form lend itself to believe and do whatever you want. Or believe and it's all up to you. 
In Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In Galatians chapter number 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? When we experience a transformed life, we live differently. There are things that we do, there are things that we don't do, but this change in behavior is a result, not a cause. Living a changed life is a byproduct. It is not the prime product, which means that we believe and Jesus in his spirit changes us. It is not, I just need to stop being this kind of person and then I can come to God. I just need to start doing all of these things. Just give me some time to get my life in order. Just give me some time to stop living this way. Just give me some time to not identify as this. Let me tell you, that's not how it works. You come to Jesus by faith and you believe and you let him do all the work. And you let him change you from the inside out. And yes, as a result of your changed heart and your life, you will do things differently. There are things that you will do. There are things that you won't do. These things are not meant to secure your belief. Living and walking in righteousness is a result of the Spirit of God working in us and through us to make us more like Jesus. Because only the bread of life satisfies, I must prioritize Jesus over standards. Belief in Jesus is the work of God. But number three, because only the bread of life satisfies, I must prefer Jesus over signs. I must prefer Jesus over signs. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so after all of this, there's still hesitancy. There's still doubt on the part of these people. They're not buying what Jesus is selling. They're not picking up what he's putting down. He challenged them, pursue me over yet another temporary earthly thing. Those things are not going to last. Those things won't give you satisfaction. So stop working so hard for all of that that you miss me. And then in his kindness, he provides clarity to what that really looks like. He says, prioritize me over your checklist of do's and don'ts. Prioritize belief and life change will follow from the overflow of what I do in your heart and your life. And so where Jesus has provided instruction, we can see that they're still confused. And now where Jesus has provided clarity, we're about to see that they're still a little clouded. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They're saying, Jesus, prove it. You're telling me all of this, prove it. Which is kind of crazy when you think about the context of this that we set up at the beginning. Because these people had been following Jesus some for a little bit of time. But even if they hadn't, these were the exact same people who just yesterday, like literally just yesterday, saw Jesus take the grocery bag of a little child with five loaves and two fish and turn it into an all-you-can-eat buffet for 20,000 people so that they would be filled and fed and have leftovers. And they're saying, Jesus, what do you, what do you got? Jesus, give us a sign. Prove that you are who you claim to be, the one sent down from heaven that, you are, that we are to believe in. What will you do to prove it? And earlier, by Jesus' own valuation, they weren't originally seeking Jesus for another sign. They weren't looking for another trick. They just knew, I was hungry yesterday. Jesus made some food and some fish and multiplied it so that I fed, or so that I was fed and my family was fed and filled up and they had leftovers. And now, guess what? I'm hungry again today. And so we're looking for Jesus to feed us again. But now, in the course of their conversation throughout this dialogue, they are finding, and we are finding as we walk through this text, that they are wanting more proof. Jesus, what you did yesterday, it wasn't good enough. So we want something else. Jesus makes these claims and issues this challenge to stop pursuing and to believe. And the fact is they're ignoring the reality that he has already given them signs. 
So even if they just took the one miracle that they saw yesterday, he's already done enough in that to prove that he can do something that no one else can do, that he has power that no one else has, that he has authority that no one else holds. And they're looking at Jesus in this moment when he's given them instruction and clarity and grace and merciful, and he's been merciful with them and patient with them, and they still don't understand. Here's where they get lost, where I think we also might get lost as well. Signs from Jesus were never meant to be the goal. Jesus did not come to do signs. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so, because the goal of Jesus was never signs, Jesus never performed a single sign to get your attention on that sign. Not one. His miracles were intended to verify his words. They were the way that he would prove it to what he said The sign was given to verify who he was. It was meant to give credibility to, to give credence to, to bolster confidence in, I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God and the Son of Man. I am God in the flesh. This sign is intended to prove to you, I mean what I say. And in Mark chapter 2, this is where we can find this to be very true. Jesus tells this man that has just been let through the roof, of a, of a stranger's home by four of his friends. They've te- torn apart the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 2 that when Jesus sees the face of this man and his friends, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, now the crowd is indignant at Jesus and his response because they say no one can forgive sins but God alone. And so Jesus, hearing this and knowing their hearts and understanding what has just happened, then says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, me, has power on earth to forgive sins, so that you know this to be true. So you know that I'm not making this up, that I'm not just saying this and you can't prove it, so that you can know that this is true. He says to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. That miracle was never, that sign, it was never the goal. It was never about, he, he, didn't, he didn't heal him first physically on the outside and then say, what else do you need? What else can I do for you? He gives him what he truly, sincerely needs that he has by faith put in Jesus and he says, your sins are forgiven you. He says, I've fulfilled the need that you really have and so let me meet another need. And the sign verifies that he was able to meet the first one. And then in verse number 31, they say to him, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So then they go to this piece of their history, and they quote Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse number 15. And the reality of that verse is that it talks about how the Israelites of the Old Testament spent 40 years in the wilderness. And during those 40 years, they were fed miraculously with manna, or bread, essentially from the sky. And they're saying, our icon and hero, Moses, he called down bread from heaven. Jesus, what do you got? Again, ignoring everything that happened yesterday. Jesus, what do you got? What's ironic is that they look at Moses and think, Jesus, can you do that? Not understanding that Jesus had just topped that yesterday. Moses could not make any more manna appear on the ground than what showed up that morning. So every morning manna would appear on the ground from God and Moses could not make any more show up. And the people of Israel were only supposed to gather what they needed for the day and no more. If they gathered too much, if they said, I'm just going to get some for today and for tomorrow, what they got for tomorrow would rot because it was supposed to encourage them and push them to rely on the daily provision of God. And so they're pointing back to this time in Israel's history And what's crazy is that Jesus has just the day before multiplied exponentially upon exponentially and more and more and more. And so now they're saying, Jesus, okay, what do you got? And then in verse 32, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's saying, Moses didn't do that. God did that. You're sitting here and you're putting your reliance on and you're putting all of your reliance on something you believe and perceive to have been done by Moses. And Jesus is saying that wasn't even Moses. And Moses actually would tell you that it wasn't him. Moses was used by God to do this, but God is the one who did it. 
But through your traditions and over your years, you have taken power that belongs to God alone and you've ascribed it to man. They would do it with Moses here. They would do it with David when they call out the fact that he, at one point in time, when he was hungry, went into the holiest of all and took the bread off the altar, which he wasn't allowed to do because he wasn't a priest. And they would do it with David. And then they would also do it with Abraham in in just a couple of chapters in, in John chapter number eight. And look again at verse number 32. Here's what it says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you this bread. Jesus is saying this isn't past tense anymore. All of that was meant to picture all of this. That manna that came down in perfect proportion every single day from heaven was never intended to be the sign of all signs. It was meant to point to the reality that one day, the true, perfect, one-time provision bread from heaven would come down. And Jesus is saying, that time is now. And then in verse number 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so here, we are getting more clarity in this moment. The bread of God is not manna. It's not whole wheat, white, pumpernickel, sourdough, rye, or gluten-free. The bread of God is a person. Because the bread of God is he. So the bread of God is a person. But not only that, this bread of God is a person. And this person is powerful. Why is this person powerful? Because of where they've come from. The bread of God is he who is coming down from heaven. But also this bread of God, it's a person who's powerful and it is provisionary. He is come to give life to the world. He's come to give life. This bread, it gives life. Jesus is saying that that bread that your fathers got with Moses, it is nothing compared to this bread. It's nothing compared to it. And maybe you're like me. And God has made some things crystal clear to you, and we're going to God saying, prove that I can trust you again. Prove that I can count on you for this. God, I really want this. God, we really need to see healing here. We really need to see provision there. We really need to know how much longer is this going to take? That is the true and sincere prayer of our hearts, but sometimes the practice of our lives is God, give us a sign so that we know you haven't forgotten about us. God, prove that you still care. God, give me another reason to believe you again. Because right now, I'm not so sure. Because right now, I'm ready to walk away. But he has already given us so much proof. And this is a reality that struck me in the face as I was preparing this and studying this. And even as, as recently as Thursday, just sitting in this reality that he has already given us so much proof. That he has fed. That he has provided. That he has healed. He has redeemed. He has delivered. He has transformed. He has broken chains. He has saved souls. He has met financial needs. He has helped you over and over and over again. He has already proven it. And because he has, I can trust that in his perfect time and his perfect way, for the glory of his perfect name, he will again. I don't need another sign. I don't need another sign. I need to abide and rest in Jesus. There was an old song that used to be sung when I was growing up that I remember, and it had a line that said, help me, Lord, to seek your face before I seek your hand. And can I tell you, that is so indicative of who we are as people. We get in these circumstances in our life, and no matter what you've walked in here with, we get in this place in our life where we say, God, do this, God, do this, God, do this, and it's not wrong for you to ask God to move. It's not wrong for you to ask God to step in. It's not wrong for you to ask God to do something, but oftentimes we're asking God, do this, and we've not spent time and said, God, who are you? Let me celebrate who you are first. Let me celebrate who you are before I ask you for you to do something great. Great are you, Lord. Let me sit in that first. 
Let me sit in who you are before I ask you to do something. Because only the bread of life satisfies, I need to prefer Jesus over signs. If he chooses to move miraculously in power, I'm so thankful. And he definitely deserves the glory. But if he never did another thing for me, he's all I'll ever need. And he deserves the glory for that. And lastly, because only the bread of life satisfies, I need to pick Jesus over self. I need to pick Jesus over self. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This is where you think that they finally got it. And they finally understand what he's talking about, but they just don't. They say to him, give us this bread always. In other words, they're still thinking that it's an actual bread. And they're saying, Jesus, this bread sounds incredible. Never stop providing us with this bread. And if it sounds familiar, would you do me a favor and turn a couple pages to your left to John chapter 4. As they're saying to Jesus, sir, give us this bread always, if it sounds familiar, John chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse number 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, hear it, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so even for this Samaritan woman who's asking really the exact same thing that these people in John 6 would ask, she was there, not fully understanding Jesus. And thinking that he's offering some physical, tangible supply that just will never run out. But through the course of their very layered conversation of John 4, she realizes that he's offering a soul-deep satisfaction that she, to this point in time, knew nothing about. And back in John 6, in verse number 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus gets about as clear as he possibly can. He's told them to stop working for the food that won't last, believe in the one sent from God, stop looking for another sign, and believe in me. And it's here that we get the first I am statement. Jesus, in his kindness, says, okay, all the cards are on the table, and they are face up. You know exactly what I'm talking about now. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, you are longing for true satisfaction. Find it in me. Believe in me. And this is important to note. This is not a promise that you will never want anything ever again. I think we can agree that no matter how long you've been following Jesus or where you are in your spiritual journey, there have been times when you have wanted something that you do not have. The weighty reality of this, of this statement, is that it is a promise that if you find fulfillment of that want in Christ, you'll never come up empty or dry. So to the teenager out here that is desiring to find identity, desiring to find who am I, where is my place in all of this. You feel like I'm not getting it. This is what I want, but I don't know where to find it. Find fulfillment of that want in Christ first. And you'll never come up empty because you are who he says that you are. 
Because as a follower of Jesus, he has declared in you and over you that you are his and that your identity is first and foremost in in him. For the college student or for the single adult in here, you're wanting to find a relationship because cuffing season came and went and you got nothing. Find true soul level intimacy first in an abiding relationship with Christ and you'll never come up empty. For the parent in here, you're wanting to guide your children, but feel like oftentimes you're not succeeding, like you're coming up short, like you're failing. It's understandable because we're flawed human beings, but hear me, find fulfillment of that desire in Christ, knowing that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that your children can find in you that they cannot find ultimately and perfectly in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that your purpose is to lead them into finding their satisfaction in him just like you do. If you are finding that in yourself you just can't be satisfied, if, you are feeling a per, if you're feeling a persistent or even a perpetual discontentment in your soul, it's not because Jesus has failed. It's not because he lacks the supply. It might be your desire. It might be your appetite. Why do parents their children No, you can't eat a whole bag of candy or down a whole pint of ice cream before dinner. The most commonly expressed reason is because it'll ruin your appetite. It'll ruin your appetite for dinner. And sure, maybe you're that kind of parent that's like, well, sugar is fine in moderation, and so I just don't want you to eat the whole pint, but you can have a little bit. But usually that's not it, right? Usually the the issue is don't have any because I don't want you to ruin your appetite for dinner. And the reality is it's because we are trying to avoid anything that would threaten that appetite. I want you to avoid anything that would threaten it. Because few, if any, children are going to have room for dinner. There won't be space for dinner if they eat the whole thing, right? There won't be space for it. But also, more than that, and more importantly, hear me, few, if any, children are going to have a desire for dinner. There won't be room for it, but there won't be a desire for it. Do you know why? Because there's a reason that they don't make broccoli ice cream. Because it is important that we not spoil our appetite. Right? My friends, we sometimes fill our souls with junk. Can we just be honest in church this morning? We sometimes fill our souls with junk. Sometimes it's sinful, but it's not always. But it is junk. And the Spirit comes in and says, I have something for your soul today. And we say, no thanks, I'm stuffed. Knowing full well, tomorrow we're going to be empty again. But if we receive what he has for us, that will make a lasting difference and bring real satisfaction. We sometimes fill ourselves and ultimately the longing of our souls with band-aids and temporary fixes and they look good and they feel good and people at church and people at work think that we have it all together but we know on the inside that we are empty and falling apart and the spirit comes and says, I have something healthy and good for your soul today. I have something good for you today. I have something that is going to bring nourishment to you today and we say, no thanks, this tastes better knowing full well tomorrow we will wish we had some healthy nourishment for our soul. Can I tell you, it might really taste better. It it might. Because what the Spirit may have is confession and repentance, which does not taste good. It might taste better to keep covering it up, to keep making sure no one knows, to keep it between, like to to keep it your little secret, your little hidden thing, it might taste better to do that. What the Spirit may have for you is a hard-to-hear rebuke from a loved one that cares about your soul. What the Spirit may have is a very heavy challenge to deny something that you and I have really come to love. What the Spirit might have is a call outside of your comfort zone so that you cannot engage in community and so that you can practice it. He may have something like that, which doesn't taste as good, but can I tell you, it's better for you. Jesus is the bread of life. And because he is, 
because only the bread of life satisfies. Man, I need to pick Jesus over myself. And I know that might sound a little elementary. Pick Jesus, right? But hear me, it's about picking Jesus over something else. It's about saying, Jesus, I want this, not this. I want you, not me. I want what you have, not what I want. So here's that big idea. True satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. Jesus, I'll pursue you. I'll pursue you over a temporary fix. Jesus, I'll prioritize you. Jesus, I'll prioritize you over anything that I can do. Jesus, I'll prefer you. I'll prefer you over seeing you do something else. I'll prefer you, time with you, intimacy with you. And Jesus, I'll pick you. I'll pick you over really what my, what my flesh desires, what I think might satisfy, what I think might fill me up, but I know won't. Jesus, I'll pick you over those things. And here at City Point Church, we have this desire not just to learn God's word, but to learn to live out God's word. We want to make application. We want to allow the spirit of God to bring his word to bear on our lives. And so I've got three questions for you this morning. Question number one, where am I running for satisfaction? Ask yourself that question, where am I running for satisfaction? If you are in this room this morning and you would say, I do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I've heard about it or I've heard nothing about it, but I know that I don't have one. I'm trusting in, I'm running to religion. I'm running to my best efforts. I'm running to relying on my parents or my family or the fact that this is how I grew up. I'm relying on just maybe I'll get to heaven and God will say, you've been a good enough person to get in here. I'm relying on that, whatever you're running to. Identify, where are you running to for satisfaction? I'm running to a day-to-day fix. I'm running to something that I think will bring me satisfaction. Identify, where am I running for satisfaction? And number two, how can I run to Jesus instead? How can I run to Jesus instead? If you're in here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, how can you run to Jesus instead? How can you run to Jesus and pursue him because he has pursued you? How can you run to Jesus and prefer him and pick him? How can you run to Jesus and prioritize him? How can you exercise faith and belief that in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, he has accomplished all that there is to do and your only work is to believe? Number three, lastly, with who can I share how I became satisfied? With who can I share how I became satisfied? Identify that person for us, for yourself. Who is that person in your life that needs to know this, whether it's a family member or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, who needs to know how you became satisfied? What they don't need to know is how you did all the right things, how you grew up in church, how you read your Bible all the time. They don't need to know that. They need to know how you became truly, fully, completely satisfied. How did you do it? And who needs to know how you did it? Who needs to know that it had nothing to do with you and everything to do with God? Who needs to know that it's because of belief, it's because of faith in his finished work that you have come to a relationship with Jesus and you have found soul level eternal satisfaction because of him? Who can you share that with? I know it's cringe, but let's get this bread of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that, Lord, as your spirit does his work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, I pray that, that you would make it very clear, very evident that you are pursuing, that you are desiring a close, intimate relationship with us. But more than that, would you make it clear that we can find true, ultimate, lasting satisfaction in you and in only you? God, as we have this opportunity to 
sit in and to think about and to walk away from this place reminded of the bread of life. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet tasted that bread and filled their soul and felt the satisfaction of their soul be filled up, the longing of their soul be met. Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not know you, Lord, would you pursue them? Would you bring them to a place where they would exercise their faith and trust and that they would do the work that you have called us to do to experience this eternal life that they would believe? And Lord, if there's a a Christian in here, a follower of you that has been struggling and has felt in their soul dissatisfaction, it's not because of you. It's not because you have not provided what you said you would. It is because we have lost our appetite. God, would you reset? Would you realign? Would you reconfigure our appetites to be set on you and on only you? Lord, as we worship you, would you receive the glory and the honor and the praise? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.